So chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. While Ezra was praying, confessing, and weeping, and throwing himself to the ground before the temple of God, a very large crowd of Israelites, men and women and children alike, gathered around him. The people wept, wept loudly. Then Shechaniah, son of Jehel, from the descent of Elam, addressed Ezra. We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the local peoples. Nonetheless, there is still hope for Israel in this regard. Therefore, let us enact a covenant with our God to send away all these women and their offspring. In keeping with your counsel, my Lord, and that those of who respect the commandments of our God, and let it be done according to law, get up for this matter concerns you. We are with you, so be strong and act decisively. Now the leaders come to Ezra, and it seems that it's their idea to get divorced. Let's get divorced. This will fix the problem. Yet, they also say, in keeping in the, your counsel, my Lord. They say that this idea of divorce is with, in keeping of your counsel, Ezra. Then he says, we are with you, so be strong and act decisively. Implying that this is his idea. So on one hand, it's their idea, yet they seem to suggest that maybe Ezra has already been telling them this. Or he's been hinting at it in his sermons for the last several months, and they have finally picked up on it. Even if it isn't his idea, he puts his rubber stamp of approval on the divorce and leads them in all these divorces. So Ezra is definitely okay with this as this happens. Ezra's allowing and even requiring divorce seems to go completely contrary to the character of God for two reasons. One, God has shown himself over and over and over again to pursue Israel and never violate his covenant promises regardless of what they've done. Thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And he had every right to abandon them. Okay, He could not abandon them as a people because he made an unconditional promise to Abraham that he would use his descendants to redeem the world. However, he could abandon his blessings of them in the Mosaic Covenant. Remember when they all sinned with the golden calf? God said, I'm going to kill them all, and I'm going to start all over with you, Moses. That was completely legal. The Mosaic Covenant said that if they violated the Mosaic Covenant, they had to die, which means God's covenant required death of all of them, and he would have been well within this covenant promises and the Mosaic Covenant to kill them all. Yet by keeping Moses alive and starting all over again, he would be keeping within his promises to Abraham to always use his people because Moses was a descendant of Abraham. So God has made it very clear that he under law can do this. He killed them all in the exile, or a lot of them in the exile, and that was not a violation of his promises in any kind of a way. So yet, despite that, he never ever wipes them completely out. He never gives up on them. He keeps pursuing them no matter what. Even in Hosea, he gives the, the, the illustration, the parable, the real-life parable of Hosea having to marry an adulterous woman who constantly cheats him over and over and over again, and some of his kids are not even his kids. And God says, never give up on her. Stay with her. And he uses that as an example of his commitment to Israel despite their idol, adultery, or idolatry, which he compared to adultery. God even holds it in a high standard. He says he hates divorce in Malachi chapter 2, verse 16. 
Jesus makes it very clear that you're not really to get divorced in any kind of way. And he says, unless they've been unfaithful to you through adultery. But even Jesus says that God, Moses, only allowed you to get a divorce because of your hard hearts. Meaning that God's will is not for you to get divorced, but he does allow it because he realizes that we're too weak sometimes to not stick it out. Now listen to me very carefully. I'm not condemning or knocking anybody who's gotten divorced. I really, truly believe that God does not want divorce. I think that he has an incredibly high standard for marriage. It is the closest earthly example that we have of God's covenant relationship with us. And this is the way that we model that kind of a love. I know that being married to certain people who are abusive or committing affairs or just downright lazy is, could be very, very difficult for year after year after year after year. I'm not saying that you shouldn't protect yourself and get out of the house and be safe if they're physically abusing you. I'm not saying you're a horrible, evil person if you've gotten divorced ever in your life. What I am saying is that God has made it very clear that divorce is not his ideal. Divorce does not fit in his character. I'm also saying this, that if you've gotten a divorce, that's no different than any other sin that I've ever committed. And it's no different than any other sin that anybody else has ever committed. And I can't throw a stone at you for getting a divorce no more than you can throw a stone at me for the sins I've committed, my anger, my frustration, my whatever, because it's all equal in God's eyes as a violating a relationship with him. And we all are under the blood of Christ. So if you've gotten a divorce, this is no different than anger or frustration or laziness or overeating or any of that kind of stuff. And it requires the blood of Christ for that atonement, just as the same as any other sin. But that doesn't change the fact that even if I have an anger problem, I still have the right to say that's not biblical. That's not godly. That's a sin to constantly give in to my anger all the time. So when I say divorce is a sin and divorce is not God's ideal, I'm not judging and condemning you. No more than when I get up here and say idolatry, drunkenness, sexual immorality, anger, lust, gossip is all a sin. Yet we're all guilty of these in different ways and different forms. Yet they need to be said. Does that make clear? Divorce is a sin. God has a high de- ideal for it. But I'm not judging or condemning you in any kind of way any more than I would when I call anything else a sin. And I don't know why we have accepted divorce in the church as, well, that's just too bad. And yet we've singled out so many other things and made them horrific. This goes against God's character, period. You, you can't argue that he's okay with breaking covenants when the entire Bible is about him keeping his covenants no matter what. And it's, this, this is a huge problem in my eyes. Not that Ezra is a horrible, evil person who wants to ruin people's lives, but Ezra doesn't seem to be doing the right thing in God's character. Second problem. This is a universal decree for everyone to get divorced regardless of their background. There are no exceptions to this decree. There is no case-by-case scenario to see what the wisest action for this family is versus that family versus this family. They're all lumped in together as doing the exact same thing requiring the exact same decree. We don't see that in the Bible in many places. The law did permit for divorce, but once again, there it, was, it had required serious cases like adultery 
And even then God said he only allowed divorce because of adultery because of their hardness of heart. Paul and Peter both, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 12 through 16, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, and even 2 Corinthians 6 through 14, are going to make it very clear that marriage, even if you're married to an unbeliever, you should not get divorced. Paul is going to warn you from entering into unbelieving spouse marriages, but they both make it very clear that being married to an unbeliever does not justify divorce. They're called to stick it out and hopefully win them over through their righteous behavior. Paul is very against dating to convert. If you're a believer and you're like, well, I'm just going to date them and that will convert them, then no, 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 no. Paul warns against that. But if you end up in a marriage with an unbeliever for whatever reason, then Paul also says you are not to back out. You're not to back out. You made a covenant promise to them. And the worst way to show God's love to them is by breaking a covenant promise to them. That doesn't share the gospel of Christ with them in any kind of way. Also, it is never mentioned the harsh reality of what it does to these women and children. These women and children are all completely sent away to fend for themselves. Now, yes, some of the women may be able to go back to their, their, their um, fathers and brothers and be taking care of their tribe, but that doesn't mean that they all have fathers and brothers to even go back to. And what Ezra basically has done is he is so focused on the sin of intermarriage, if that even is a sin, if we were to take it as really truly, there's more than, if it's just intermarriage, then it's not a sin. If it's intermarriage along with unbelievers who are practicing detestable actions, he's still so zeroed in and focused on that that he completely ignores what this is doing to all the women and children. And we know that even in America, where it is more, it is easier for a woman and a child who are divorced from their spouse to survive and still make ends meet, not easy, but easier than the ancient world, is still horribly devastating on the family, destroys children's and their, their sense of self-worth and psyche as they grow up. And Ezra doesn't consider any of that, especially in a time period where women and children cannot survive without men in this culture. And that's never addressed. Like I said, this, this one case fits all. Never looking at the details, the exceptions, or the little picture is very bothersome. He just basically assumes that everybody's the same, never mentions the details, but really focuses on the fact that they're intermarrying. God never, ever, ever promised us a comfortable life. He never promised us that we would have all these material, external blessings. What he did promise is that he would give us peace and joy and hope if we stay committed to him despite a life of discomfort or suffering or whatever. They were supposed to primarily be a witness to the world. And this is a horrible witness when you just massively divorce everybody and send them away. And Malachi follows up with this, talking about this exact scenario. Malachi says in 2.16 that God hates divorce. 
talking about this exact scenario. Could be talking about the first divorce that they committed in order to marry the foreigners, which seems likely, but that would say if he hates that divorce, he would also hate this divorce as well. Okay, I've heard some scholars say, well, he's talking about the first one. I was like, so that makes the second one okay? Like he hates the one divorce, but not the other divorce? To Ezra's credit, this is a horrible situation to be in. Okay, I've said it over and over again. I don't have a lot of respect for a lot of our leaders right now in America. I don't really agree with a lot of things that they're doing. But at the same time, I don't know what the right answer is in every scenario. And I am so thankful that I am not the leader right now trying to do all this. Okay, we all saw how much Obama grade in just four years. I think leadership over massive amount of people has to be a horrible situation. So to Ezra's credit and his defense, this is a horribly difficult situation. On one hand, he has legitimate, genuine fears that if we have foreigners coming in and if there are true detestable practices coming in, then this could easily corrupt the community who is easily corrupted as we get to the end of the book of Nehemiah and everything that happened before exile, and they could end up right back under the judgment of God again. Yet at the same time, God has made it very clear that he hates divorce, that there's supposed to be a witness to the world, that not every single case should be treated exactly the same. And he's got to figure out the right thing to do for all these people. This is a horribly complicated scenario that he has to deal with. To his credit, he's probably picking the lesser of two evils. Or what he thinks is the lesser of two evils. He's in one scenario has possible corruption and idolatry coming into his Jewish community. On the other hand, he's got divorce, which violates the covenant of God. It doesn't seem likely that there is a good solution here. Ezra and his prayer and his understanding of the law, though most scholars believe that his interpretation of the law is not very accurate, he does the best that he can in the culture that he is in. And to his credit as well, we also don't know all the details because Ezra left so many details out. It's hard for us to thoroughly say what he did was right or wrong because we don't have all those details. So in some cases, I really truly believe that Ezra was in the wrong for what he did. I think this completely goes contrary to the will of God and his character. And I really truly believe that there are way too many details that he did not consider or evaluate. However, I also understand that Ezra was a godly man doing the best of what he had and the scenario that he is. And I can't judge him for the choice that he made because I have hindsight with the book, the law of Christ, the death and resurrection, and to look at this. And who am I to do what he did in his own particular scenario? So does that kind of make sense? I really think that this is unbiblical and not exactly what God intended. Especially, there are no specific mandates in the law what to do with this. I mean, yes, God says he hates divorce, but he does allow divorce for this reason. But he also says it's because of the hardness of their heart. But we don't learn that it's about the hardness of their heart until we get to Jesus. And then Jesus is the one that actually lists divorce up or um, marriage even higher. Okay, in the First Testament, anti-divorce wasn't as stringent, as clearly stringent as it is now with Christ. Christ really lifted the bar 
on everything. But at the same time, Chris didn't really lift the bar. He just told them that's where the bar was all along. They just didn't know it was there because they were too thick-headed and hard-hearted to know where the bar really was. Because he says, you've heard it said, don't commit uh, murder. But I say, do not even have anger. And the implication is you should have realized that when God tells you not to murder, he meant anger too and da-da-da-da-da. And Moses even says, like, you, this isn't hard to figure out, people. You should be able to do this. And now he didn't mean obedience to the law because nobody can, but he meant like figuring out what the law said. This is complicated. And the best thing we can do is just, as we face really difficult issues like this, looking at the word of God is to give people grace as they're figuring out difficult gray areas, come alongside of them and pray with them and help them come to wise decisions as we're all led by the Holy Spirit. But Ezra's obviously alone. His interpretation is skewed. Nobody's there to tell him it's not. The Holy Spirit is not on him and leading him like it is with us. He doesn't have the law of Christ. And he's a difficult scenario facing just coming out of timeout and not wanting to go back to timeout again. This is not easy. I do think he's wrong, but I also appreciate the fact that it's not easy. It's not easy. Perhaps, too, in Ezra's defense... If he's dealing with men that are already divorced their wives, he may not be incredibly sympathetic towards them and having to go through another divorce. However, it still never addresses the women and children. It never addresses the women and children. The prophet said that a time was coming when God was going to bring people from all the nations towards Israel and Judah, and that he was going to build his cosmic mountain in Judah and he was going to open the gates towards everyone. Ezra's desire to protect the community only focuses on the law. It does not take consideration any of the prophets. And that's the other problem I have. The prophets seem to suggest that a time is coming post-exile where God is more open to the Gentiles than he was under the strict requirements of the law. We also know from Jeremiah 31, 31, that God was going to do away with the law one day. So if you really look at the prophets, that means that God is going to do away with the law one day and that Israel was supposed to be way more open to foreigners than they ever had been before. And yet Ezra never takes in consideration any of the prophets and their interpretation of the law and how to physically do this or how to do this. Ezra is building up a wall. As physical as the wall that Nehemiah will build, Ezra is going to build a spiritual, metaphysical wall to keep the people out. This is going to, nothing says you're not welcome than mass divorce and sending women and children away to fend on their own and possibly die. Nothing says, hey, come join us. We love you, like sending people off to die. And the divorce. He is going to build a wall. And part of the reasons that the oppression is going to get worse and worse and worse is probably because of this action right here. Verse 5. So Ezra got up and made the leading priests and the Levites and all of Israel take an oath to carry out his plan. And they all took a solemn oath. Then Ezra got up from the front, in front of the temple of God, and went to the room of Jehoiakim, son of Elishabai, Elishabib. While he stayed there, he did not eat food or drink, for he was in the morning over the infidelity of the exiles. The minute they say, hey, we think that we should get a divorce like you recommend, Ezra immediately jumps out of his mourning 
and out and jumps and grabs the Levites, brings them in and says, let's swear on it right now. Here's our witness. Because even though Ezra, I don't believe he's in the right, what he does get, and I do appreciate, is that people making commitments only last so long. When you are like inspired to be committed and, 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 and walk away from your evil lifestyle and burn all that horrible stuff or make a new change in your life, Typically, you feel that emotion, you drive home from camp, and you get back home, and you get into the normalness of home, and all of a sudden, all those emotions are gone, and you go back on your promises. What does he do? Why the emotions are high, and they're super committed, he brings the priest in and says, now swear before God, or he'll kill you. Okay, And he makes sure that they get this in ink, blood, whatever it's required, so nobody goes back on their promises. And that one you got to appreciate with Ezra, that he understands human nature enough that it won't last very long. A proclamation was circulated through Judah and Jerusalem that all the exiles were to be assembled in Jerusalem. Everyone who did not come within three days would thereby forfeit all of his property in keeping with the counsel of the officials and the elders. Furthermore, he would himself be excluded from the assembly of the exiles. Now that's huge. Any man who's married a foreigner who doesn't show up in four days, will forfeit all of his property and be kicked out of Judah for life. Once again, there's that harshness there. Verse 9, All the men of Judah and Benjamin were gathered in Jerusalem within three days, and it was the ninth month, the twentieth day of that month. And all the people sat in the square at that temple of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the rains. And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have behaved in an unfaithful manner by taking foreign wives. This has contributed to the guilt of Israel. Now notice, once he stands up before him, he doesn't say, you've behaved in an unbefitting way because of your idolatry, because of your pagan practices. He says, because of your foreign wives. That's what he focuses on. Like I said, I have a hard time accepting the fact that this is truly horribly evil when not once idolatry is ever mentioned. Not once. Separate yourselves from the local residents and from these foreign wives. All the assembly replied in a loud voice, We will do just as you have said. However, the people are numerous, and it is a rainy season. So the rain is making this difficult, because not only are they going to get a divorce, not only are there four days to get here, but they're standing in the middle of the rain, and it's a downpour while Ezra is giving his sermons. We are unable to stand out here outside. Furthermore, the business cannot be resolved in a day or two, for we have sinned greatly in this matter. Let our leaders take the steps on behalf of all the assembly and let all those in our towns who have married foreign women come at the appointed time and with them the elders of each town and its judges until the hot anger of our God is turned away from us in this matter. Only Jonathan, son of Ashiel, and Jehiaz, son of Tikvah, were against this, assisted by Mahalilam and Shabbathiah, the Levite. So the exiles proceeded accordingly. Ezra the priest separated out by name the men who were the leaders in their family groups, and they sat down to consider this matter on the first day of the tenth month. On the first day of the first month, they finished considering all the men who had married foreign wives. A total of 113 Israelites get divorced. That's a lot. It's a lot of women and children to send away, too. That's all. That's 113 women now that are on their own, in many cases, a lot of these would probably have children, if not more. So my guess is at least 113 children, too. Because of the families that don't have a kid, there's probably families that have two or three kids. 
And they're all being sent out to fend for themselves. And it never talks about that. This is only a fraction of the total number. I mean, statistically speaking, this is a small fraction considering how many people. But here's what's interesting. The Levites, the priests, were only 10% of the community and population. But they made up 15% of the cases of intermarrying. Which means the group that was largely responsible for marrying foreign women were the priests. They were the ones. Now, if they truly were practicing idolatry and detestable practices, that might also explain Ezra's harsh actions because the priesthoods were supposed to remain holy above all other things. And so as he lists 18 through 30, 44, all these men who got divorced, the priests made it the large case of numbers. But it's interesting that God is largely silent on this. This is the hard part of the Bible sometimes. The Bible very rarely evaluates people's actions. It expects you to have a good enough understanding of the law and the character and reputation of God throughout the Bible to put it all together and make the evaluation. So not only is this a difficult case for them in this time period, it's also a difficult case for us to evaluate and say whether it's yay or nay on this. But there doesn't seem to be any judgment of God poured out on them. And Malachi himself says he hates divorce. Speaking to this time period. So this what makes it difficult. But this is how the wave of Ezra ends. They all got divorced at the end. This is definitely not Walt Disney. 